Welcome back to a new series of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson. This is series eight, and I want to devote it to an important work by Henry David Thoreau, the essay that came to be known as Civil Disobedience. This should take four podcast episodes, I think, and after that I may go on to Walden, Thoreau's great work about his time living in the woods, what he did, what he saw and thought, and what he learned. But we'll start with civil disobedience. The essay we know as Civil Disobedience began as a lecture in 1848, and then was published the following year with the title Resistance to Civil Government, published in the first issue of a magazine that, alas, folded after its first issue. After that, the essay seems to have sat in obscurity. It was republished four years after Thoreau died in 1862, placed towards the back of a collection of Thoreau's essays. Again, it seems to have been given little attention until Tolstoy discovered it and promoted it as something all Americans should pay homage to. Shortly after that, Gandhi read the essay when he was at Oxford, and then, back in South Africa in 1907, he printed the essay in his newspaper and regarded it as so important that he also issued it as a pamphlet. Thoreau's ideas played an important part in shaping Gandhi's approach to non-violent resistance to the British Raj. These ideas also inspired the Danish resistance to the Nazis. In the 1950s American witch hunt against the communists, a time when America was in danger of complete suppression of dissident thought and action, Senator McCarthy, the demagogue who led this movement, tried to get civil disobedience removed from public libraries. Now, that's, that's always the ultimate compliment. When tyrants find your work so vibrant and dangerous that in their fear they want to do all they can to get rid of the work. McCarthy didn't succeed, of course. And finally, Martin Luther King took up the essay. Let me read you what he said in 1962 about civil disobedience. During my early college days, I read Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience for the first time, fascinated by the idea of refusing to cooperate with an evil system. I was so deeply moved that I reread the work several times. I became convinced then that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. No other person has been more eloquent and passionate in getting this idea across than Henry David Thoreau. As a result of his writings and personal witness, we are the heirs of a legacy of creative protest. It goes without saying that the teachings of Thoreau are alive today. Indeed, they're more alive today than ever. Whether expressed in a sit-in at lunch counters, a freedom ride into Mississippi, a peaceful protest in Albany, Georgia, a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, it is an outgrowth of Thoreau's insistence that evil must be resisted and no moral man can patiently adjust to injustice. No moral man or woman can patiently adjust to injustice. 
That's the theme for us, the theme that motivated Henry David Thoreau in the 1840s and Gandhi in the 1940s and King in the 1950s and 60s and surely, and surely us too at the present moment. We'll keep this in mind as we attend to what Thoreau was saying back then, stretching across the years. We may agree or disagree with Thoreau, but what's important is that we attend and allow him to wake us to further consideration of what's going on and what we propose doing or not doing. First, some background on Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau is probably most famous for his retreat to Walden Pond. The myth is that he left society in order to live an isolated life of a hermit, far away from everyone, just communing with nature. It wasn't quite like that, though. On July 4th, 1845, when he was just short of his 28th birthday, Thoreau moved into his one-room house on Walden Pond, a house he'd built himself, scrounging or finding or occasionally buying the material he needed. The whole expense, he bragged, came to only $28.12.5. He says in a famous line at the beginning of his book, Walden, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. In other words, he did not go there to get away from people, but to simplify his life and prove to himself that it was possible to live a decent, fulfilling life on the bare essentials. But he also went there to find a good spot to write, and indeed, in the two years and a bit that he lived there, he, he wrote a great deal. His routine was to start the day with a bath in the pond, when it wasn't frozen, and then spend the morning writing, and the afternoon going out on three or four hour walks through the hills and woods surrounding his native Concord, Massachusetts, meeting people, visiting farms, and always taking notes of what he observed. Walden Pond was only about a mile and a half from town, and Thoreau often went back to Concord in the later afternoons or evenings, often returning to his parents' house, where there were always sumptuous meals for the family and their many guests, and good conversation. His mother and sisters were staunch abolitionists, as were many of the guests who would stay there. You can, you can imagine the kind of talk that went around the table as people tried to work out how to live with a good conscience in a country that constitutionally allowed slavery, at least in the southern states, to be a legal institution. Thoreau's mother, for instance, would not put sugar on her table since it was produced by slave labor. And the house was one of the stops on the Underground Railway, a place where runaway slaves could find safe haven and, often led by Thoreau himself, be helped onto a train that would take them out of the United States over to Canada and freedom. The split between the free states and the slave states was growing wider now in the 1840s, and more bitter. Abolitionists in the North expressed their opposition to slavery in different ways. Many felt that, since the Constitution recognized slavery and left it to individual states to legislate for or against slavery, then no good citizen, no matter how opposed to slavery, 
could legally demand abolition in another state. We'll see what Thoreau thought of these people. Others took up religious arguments against slavery, such as William Lloyd Garrison's New England Non-Resistance Society, with its principle that one must not oppose force with force. It was an extreme organization in many ways. For one thing, it was radical for its time in welcoming members regardless of gender or race. But its members came pretty much from the elite social classes. It refused allegiance to a government based on human, not divine laws, and even advocated seceding from a union that included the slave state. Bronson Orcutt, a neighbor of Thoreau's, was the first in Concord to join the non-resistance society. One of his methods of opposition was to withhold his taxes, and in 1843 was about to be put in jail for non-payment, but at the last minute one of his in-laws paid the tax for him. I wouldn't want to say that this incident inspired Thoreau's refusal to pay the poll tax himself, more on this in a second, but rather it gives us the context of one way people resisted the government, by refusing support, by refusing to pay taxes. Thoreau will have more to say about this when we get to it. Also close to home was Samuel Hoare, my esteemed neighbor, the state ambassador, Thoreau called him. He traveled south to Charleston, South Carolina, in November 1844, to protest that some free black sailors from Massachusetts had been incarcerated there. This imprisonment was illegal, but the law was being ignored. Hoare was met in Charleston with hostility and violence, and was sent packing after a week. Direct negotiation had no effect. A few months after Thoreau moved into his little house on the shore of Walden Pond, Texas was annexed as a new state in the United States. This was seen as a great victory for the slave states because Texas had legalized slavery, and being admitted to the Union meant that pro-slavery votes would have a permanent majority in Congress, and slavery would never be abolished you can see how the country was headed towards a major crisis. It was not only the issue of slavery that bothered Thoreau and others, however. The United States was at that time engaged in probably the most outrageous of its frequent military incursions into nations south of its border, in this case an all-out war with Mexico to gain territory in the southwest so that they could increase the number of slave states and thus increase the south's political control of congress the war was grossly unfair the united states was incomparably superior as a military force and it just took what it wanted now that's an unjust war here's how thoreau summed up his position when a sixth of a population of a nation which has undertaken to be the refuge of liberty are slaves, and a whole country is unjustly overrun and conquered by a foreign army and subjected to military law, I think that it is not too soon for honest men to rebel and revolutionize. And what makes this duty more urgent is the fact that the country so overrun is not our own, but ours is the invading army. So there's Thoreau, 
nurtured in a family of abolitionists in Concord, the center of the transcendental movement, which insisted on the integrity of the individual and the individual conscience. What could Thoreau do to protest slavery in the Mexican War? He broke his ties with a government that legalized slavery. A man cannot without disgrace be associated with such a government, he said. I cannot recognize that political organization as my government, which is the slave's government also. He broke his ties by refusing to pay his taxes, which weren't much, but that wasn't the point. He wasn't, as we have seen, the only one who refused to pay taxes, but he became the most famous. For four years he had not been paying his taxes, and, and then one day the consequences manifested themselves. He was put in prison for only one night, but that was profound enough. We'll have more to say about this when we come to discuss the event as related in the essay itself, but for now we're, we're just following the context of the essay. Thoreau sat with this experience for 18 months until he found the right way to speak about it, at last writing it up as a lecture called The Relation of the Individual to the State, given at the Concord Lyceum, part of a lively series of annual talks. He took the podium as a local boy who'd gone out to the woods to live and who spent a night in the jail. He's one of us, the townspeople felt, but he's different. His talk went over well, and he gave it again a month later, and it was published the next year in the inaugural issue of an ambitious magazine called Aesthetic Papers. Thoreau never had good luck in getting his work out to the public, though, and as I said earlier, after this first issue, the magazine folded, leaving the essay in obscurity until after Thoreau's death. We've already seen how then it was rediscovered by Tolstoy and Gandhi and King and others. Well, I think that's enough background to civil disobedience. We'll meet again next time and look at the first part of the essay, bringing to life the writing in its own context and also, I hope, in the context of our own times. See you then. <laughs>